Um, no, you all know what a big Star Wars fan I am. I'm Ming-Na Wen. I play Fennec Shand. And, and if you told me, okay, this film, Return of the Jedi, came out June 1983, right? I was a freshman. I just finished freshman year of college studying acting. And I was so excited to see this movie. Um, but if you were to tell me, fast forward 40 years later, that I would be here at the Star Wars celebration in London in front of you guys with banners of me as Fennec Shan out there between Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia, I would be like, you're crazy. <laughs> but here we are, and I'm so excited about this. Um, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? I think uh, I'm supposed to introduce, without delay, oh, wait, hold on, um, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm feeling, there's a, there's a slight disturbance in the force, uh, okay, hold on, you know, Luke, Luke, okay, wait, wait, I think Mark Hamill wants to tell us something. I want to send my love and very best wishes to all of you at Star Wars Celebration London. It also gives me the opportunity to thank you, because if you're there, you're a fan, and Star Wars fans are the best fans in the world. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your enduring devotion through the years. So have fun, be kind to one another, and remember, the Force will be with each and every one of you, always. Oh my goodness. All right, without further delay, because we only have an hour and we have so many amazing guests, I want to introduce Senior Vice President, Creative Innovative at Lucasfilm and ILM's Chief Creative Officer, Rob Bredow. <laughs> and then next, we have Lucasfilm's 
creature, droid, and special uh, makeups effect supervisor on all UK productions over the last decade, Neil Scanlon! And of course, Vice President and Executive Creative Director of Lucasfilm, our very own Doug Chang! when I first saw Return of the Jedi and that big reveal, right, about Princess Leia being Luke Skywalker's twin sister. I want to ask you, all three of you, when you first saw Return of the Jedi, what, what was your first impression of it? And, um, you know, whether it's characters or scenes or location, what stands out for you? You want to start first? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, hello, everybody. Um, yeah. No, I, I saw Return of the Jedi when I was a freshman at UCLA, and it was the most mind-blowing experience because by then I was already a Star Wars fan, and they were screening Return of the Jedi at the Westwood Theater 24 hours a day, so I remember being in line at 2 a.m. to watch the 6 a.m. show, and the amazing thing was the film just blew me away. I mean, the speeder bike chase just like, you know, it was ingrained into my brain. But the big takeaway for me was that I realized Star Wars is very expensive because I remember seeing some early sort of concept work from Ralph McQuarrie of Jabba's Barge. And it was such a huge departure in style from what I had seen before from New Hope and Empire Strikes Back that I couldn't get my head around, well, how can this fit within the Star Wars universe? But then when I saw Return of the Jedi, it completely made sense. And that's when I realized George was thinking way outside the box. Each of these films have something new in there. And that's the way I kind of, the big takeaway for me on Return of Jedi is that for all of our new series, all of our new films now, I always try to add that little bit of component of new because Star Wars design is very defined in terms of the box that George created. But within that box, there's a lot of freedom. And I love to push the envelope in terms of what that box is. That's a, that's a great point. Yes. And then for, for both of you, was part of watching this film, like you incorporate something to what you do now? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, from, you know, you have to imagine, you know, what am I at this age? I'm sort of in my 20s and, you know, I'm beginning to look at the possibility of is, will there be ever be a possibility that I could get involved in this film industry, this thing that I had absolutely obsessed about in my teens? And, um, you know, I, I go to see Return of the Jedi and uh, I think the thing I took away from it most was just I consider it to be brave now, but in the day, it wasn't. It's just how many creatures, how many practical elements, how many um, uh, of those moments were uh, that George gave to me. So I was just so... You know, the other films had them, but I think Return just has so much more, and that was the thing I took away, was that it was just an absolute treat to see all this work that people had done, that, you know, uh, Phil Tippett and Stuart Freeborn, all of these uh, different versions and... And, and, you know, the brave thing of jab, all that, all that. That's what I took away, that this was, this was, I could still do And look, it. you know, you kind of did something with that inspiration, huh? Slowly. <laughs> I remember just, I remember walking out of the theater, having seen Empire Strikes Back, and looking at my friends who, oh, we all went to the theater, like, we were completely electrified, like, walking out of a concert. We're like, 
how long do we have to wait until the next movie comes out? And when you're that young. And we had to wait <laughs> my back parents, then. My parents are like, it's going to be two or three years. And we said, no way. Because that's like half a lifetime when you're a young kid. And I remember like getting rumors that there was going to be Ewoks and there was rumors about what was happening. And we didn't believe, of course, that Darth was really Luke's father. So we assumed at that point it was going to be Revenge of the Jedi. was going to turn that on its head. But so we got to argue about that for two years between those films. Yeah, so many things. I remember tearing apart the making of books and like figuring out, looking at how they fit multiple puppeteers inside of Jabba. Yeah, absolutely. I was, it was yeah. so, I mean, everything about that movie, trying to figure out how they flew all those ships, so many layers of compositing, like everything about that movie was so inspiring. And I do want to say one thing. I mean, you know, since we're all here for Return of the Jedi, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard the sad news um, just this week about the passing of Norman Reynolds. Um, he was such an amazing production designer, and he established the look of Star Wars with John Barry, the original production designer. And his legacy has completely transformed me in terms of how I approach film design, because he really established the Star Wars look with John Barry and George Lucas. And you know, for me, it's, I think one of the biggest takeaways is that you know we're building upon these legends, and we're trying to sort of create and sort of you know create images that live up to their their legacy. And for me, you know, Norman Reynolds was a giant in the industry. As a production designer, he was somebody that I looked up to. And so, yeah, it was really quite sad this week. Yeah, it was definitely Absolutely. a loss Absolutely. for the Star Wars community and all the fans. Um, now, uh, going forward about that, uh, also the, 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 um, the digital effect tools that were used then as well, um, Rob, I, I want to find out, like, what was your inspiration for uh, what you do now um, based on the, the advancements and achievements of Return of the Jedi? It, it's very different, right, from the photochemical, I think, uh, visual exactly. effects? Yeah, yeah like I mean, the technologies have advanced at, you know, at hyperspeed. Is that the right word in this audience uh, <laughs> since then? But I got to say, the teams that did that work, I don't know if we have it, but um, we, we pulled some of the early previs that was done. We still use previs today using the latest in digital technology. But back in Return of the Jedi, they were also using the latest in technology. Back then, uh, if you wanted a previs out of sequence, you had to shoot it, maybe on 8 or 16 millimeter film. You had to have some, and you have to get that film developed and wait overnight for all of this. But this was at, in, in the era of Jedi, and this is real. This is. <laughs> I think that looks really good. So that amazing sequence is the, the Kerner characters, and this is Dennis Murin and a small team of people. Tip could have been in this room. I, I, I think I've seen photos of them in this room. They were using a brand new technology called video cassette decks, which they literally got an early one, shipped in wow. from Japan so they didn't have to wait overnight for each of these shots. They could cut together the sequence. There's even sound to it. They're doing some of the voices. They're trying out all the ideas that you later see in the movie, and <laughs> in Return of the Jedi, you know, in this era, there were not action sequences like this. Every one of these shots, they, they did all this planning without knowing how they were gonna do it in the final shot. And then once they had the sequence worked out and George had a chance to buy off it and the director was involved, <laughs> then they could plan out each shot, figure out how they were gonna shoot the elements, layer all the elements together. Now, by contrast today, I don't know if we have today's previs, it's, it's all with the latest digital it technology. Is Before you move on, Rob, I want to see this movie. It's a right? good <laughs> I want to go home and do this myself now as like a my my twelve year old self. That's amazing. It's fabulous. <laughs> so um and and I feel like uh, Neil, you know, 
looking at this, right? <laughs> um, everything was very okay. tactile back then, as opposed yeah. to now where it's more digital. So when... <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to say anything. This keeps going on. Yeah, Everybody move, just move, wants to watch ahead. that. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, you there were, was uh, you no were, way I was going to answer that question while that reel was rolling. I, I know. I think we're going to go backstage and finish watching the whole thing. That was amazing. Are you, do you want to show Rob? Your digital version of that? Oh, do you want to see today's? Like, yeah. maybe we have a yes. very short clip yes, from Mando. This uh, John Favreau gave us permission just to show. This is a little behind the scenes uh, of, of what previs looks like on mo one of the most recent episodes. Just came out a couple weeks ago. So if we have that queued up, let's play that. Let, let's play what today's previs looks like. And it's and the it, same techniques. Like you're trying yes. first to work out the story, and then go ahead and roll it anytime you have it, and then you. Um, and then you work out the, the techniques, and in that case, it's, now it's all digital motion control with real actors. Um, and it really helps us as actors to have this to look at. I mean, it's crazy. So, if you, depending on uh, what it looks like on your screen, you might even think some of those shots are the shots in the film, but that's how sophisticated the previous looks today, when this is, of course, how it played in the episode that you just saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, but yeah, but the other clip there is the, is the four quadrants that shows both the creative uh, material that was bought off, which is the equivalent of the Kerner dolls that they did uh, back on Jedi, but then also all the technical planning that goes into that. And then for us, like when we have to do fight scenes and everything, to be able to see it and, and where the angles are going to be and how it's going to be shot, you know, it's like taking storyboarding to this whole other level and it, it just keys everybody in to that one vision and, and it makes the process so much more fluid and, and just helpful. But um, it's a lot of work that goes into that. Although I still like the Barbie doll thing yes. that uh, we were watching before. It's still a good technique. <laughs> but um, speaking of, you know, uh, all this, when, Neil, when you were working like with Jim Henson's uh, studio and, and Lucasfilm, they were two of the biggest um, shops that were working simultaneously to, yep. to do Return of the Jedi. Um, what, what was it that was helping to advance, uh, you know, the art of puppetry and creature fabrication? Because I know I wrote on a bantha in the book of Boba Fett, yeah. and it was puppetry and mechanics, yes. and I mean, it was a living, breathing animal to me. But yeah, how I... far has it gone? Well, I think, you know, one has to step back a little earlier than that to say the work of Ray Harryhausen, you know, which we, you know, most of us here would consider to be the godfather of visual effects. We, we're all in some way, shape or form uh, inspired by Ray. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as, as we're coming into this period, you know, technology like it is with digital is beginning to move out of animation as being the primary uh, uh, form of putting a character onto the screen and practical puppetry and all of those things are starting to happen. So the truth of the matter is, is we haven't got a, you know, I would imagine that uh, people like Phil and, 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 as I say, Stuart and all those people, they, and uh, ourselves, uh, obviously I'm not here at this time, but I know the people that worked at this time, they hadn't got a clue what they were doing. I mean, it was every day was a new day for them, and it was a new material. It was it was a time of invention. It was a time of learning from your mistakes, and a, a really innovative and really creative time. And um, I think that that's what you see, and, and that's what we take away. When I look back, uh, I just I find such huge inspiration for them 
for all the things they did, the, how brave they were, how uh, they were able to utilize. They couldn't hide from things. Today, when we do things and I have a problem, I just say, Rob, can you just get rid of that for me? And, uh, you know, it disappears. But no, in those days, they had to hide and do all those things. So I think it is a, it is a really fascinating and wonderful period of, of all of these people who contributed, of which there are many, many of them, uh, to all aspects of how those characters were brought to the screen. And, of course... I have a dear love, a memory from Jim and all the work that Jim did and people like Rick Baker also, uh, who were also pioneering in all of these techniques at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And even to this day, right, we, we have our Grogu, but it, it's a practical. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think it lends itself to that realism and, and a sense of having someone or something there that you can react to. You know, it's both, it, it's great to have both where you have the visual yeah. effects as well as the practical. And, and, and it, it just gives it content. Yeah, and I think it's something that is so unique in many ways and wonderful to the Star Wars stories, the, the film stories, is that the practical effects were, in, in a sense, the only way of doing them at the time. And that legacy has stayed. And we've, thankfully, held on to that, which I believe is something that we would want to do in the future, if you still want us to. And, um, you know, we continue forward, you know, making an instant part of it. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, now, before all that can happen, we need the designs. Right, Doug? And, and I remember collecting um, Ralph McQuarrie's books and, and all the beautiful designs, um, you know, from Star Wars to Empire Strikes Back. And, and you, now I'm collecting your books and your beautiful designs. Um, I'm just wondering, like, Jabba the Hutt was this character went, that went through many, many versions before George Lucas said, okay, that's the one. For you, what was that, ex what is the experience like to create these Star Wars creatures and then coming to that one moment where you're like, yes, this is the final, this is the final image of this character or this creature? No, I mean, for designs, we do so many designs. I mean, literally hundreds of not thousands before, you know, they're approved. And for character design, it's really tricky. And, and this is something that I learned from George when I worked with him on the prequels. And it started with the Return of the Jedi, where Phil Tippett would actually sculpt these characters. And we literally approach creature design like casting for actors because we're trying to capture personalities. And like George, I remember he said for Java, you know, model it after Sydney Greenstreet from Casablanca. And that became the character archetype for that. And so when we design now for all of our characters, like, you know, for the prequels, I literally, we had a whole lineup on our Friday reviews where we had these little character types. And sometimes we weren't given enough information in terms of what the character was going to be, but we just kind of threw out ideas. And George would come in and literally look across the lineup as if there are 3D headshots and say, oh, this would be a great sidekick, this would be a great villain, and this would be the hero. And if he didn't have names, at that time, he would actually give them names right there on the spot. And that's where George was brilliant with that. And I'm finding the similar process now with John Favreau, where we'll pitch ideas for characters, and he'll have a very specific actor in mind. Like say, you know, let's model it after this person. And we'll try to see if we can capture that essence in a creature form. The only difference was that for Grogu, he didn't have a character in mind. He actually had an animal. He said, make it like a puppy dog. <laughs> and so that was the only difference. But otherwise, we approach creature designs the same way, and there are hundreds of drawings that, that go into the design. And we're, we're looking at um, Jabba the Hutt here, of course. Um, and I remember, you know, seeing behind the scenes where they had to slime him up and, and you know, make him feel real. And 
I, I'm just wondering, Neil, um, with a huge, massive, remarkable, um, practical creature such as Jabba the Hutt, what, what were some of the um, uh, inspiration that you took from this character and, and what kind of experience did you have like, in creating a, a large-scale creature like the, the, the sea cows in um, The Last Jedi? Yeah, I think that you know what what uh, is it remarkable about Jabba is that uh, essentially it it is it's it's an enormous puppet, isn't it? And and it's brought to life by a number of puppeteers that are all working together in one choreographed fashion to make this work. And uh, you know that was one of the, the 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 big things I think that came out of that was that creatures were not um, technically designed at the at the very uh, be core of what they were they were they were to be performed by people by artists in their own right and um, it, when we had the opportunity of doing the sea cow I mean uh, you know that was a great opportunity it was also an extraordinary thing that we were going to fly it in on a helicopter put it on the right on the edge of the coastline we had a number of hours to work with before the tide came in and drowned everybody so we needed to make sure that we got it in and we got it. And, and, and the fun side of that was uh, I, I got the great joy of not only putting puppeteers inside the sea cow, but actually sealing them in there as well. They were in there to stay. Cool. <laughs> that is cool because I'm sure it was cold and it's heavy. <laughs> they went yeah. in through the top of the neck. The neck then folded down and we sealed the neck up and that was it. They, we, they had biscuits and all kinds of things to keep them happy. Are they, are they and, still um, in there, Neil? Are they still in there? They, they, we really wanted to do that. We wanted to just shout cut and literally all just leave. And uh, No, no. So, you know, the inspiration is exactly the same thing. You're, you, you know, whether it's a small character that's on your hand or whether it's a large character, it really won't live unless... It's it's, it, unless I think some form of it or a substantial amount of it is performed by a, a, a human being, an artist. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to take away from, you know, robots and, and, and animatronics essentially as being a, a performable entity, but there's a soul that we as a species bring to something, and that's, yeah. that's really important to the art, that art, isn't it? And then to be able to design the, because I remember, you know, all our puppeteers were so incredible and they had to be so agile and they were in awkward positions a lot of times for hours on end. And, uh, it, you know, you have to try to design it where they can work with it for those hours and, and, and be able to still give it that life. And it's a lot of technical things yeah. that go into making it Workable. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, the, one of the things I always say to people is if you just want to get a, a sensation of what that's like, if you try and hold your hand up for any period of time, just put something in your hand and hold it there, you'll very quickly realize just how physical even hand puppetry is. So, yeah, these people are physical performers who are also actors, who are also artists all in their right. So it's a very, I mean, it's a wonderful job to do. It's an incredible job, yeah. And Doug, um, for both The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett, you know, something I know a little bit about. <laughs> now, they, the Mando took place, like, what, five years after um, Return of the Jedi's events. Uh, how did Return of the Jedi influence the overall approach to designing these series? You know, did, you know because you, you had to, like, absorb some of this but still make Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett stand on its own? 
I mean, that was actually a lot of the fun that we had in doing, you know, The Mandalorian and the book Boba Fett, was that we could build upon Return of the Jedi. I mean, Return of the Jedi established so many iconic places and sets like Jabba's Palace. And so when we were actually going to return there for Book of Boba Fett, it was really a wonderful opportunity because I remember watching Return of the Jedi and I wanted to find out more about, you know, what is in that palace? Where are all the other rooms? You know, because it seemed like a terrific set. So we had that opportunity in Book of Boba Fett because we were going to visit the kitchen. We were going to visit Boba's bedroom. We were going to visit the hangar. And so the idea was to really go back and see if we can find any drawings that Norm Reynolds might have done in terms of what that palace was going to be. And we didn't find that much. So our approach was really taking what we've seen and then building on it, you know, extrapolating the aesthetic from it. And our approach was really to pretend that, okay, we were back in the 1980s. This is what George would have done. He just didn't build it or shoot it, but we were going to do it now. And it was really fun because we were basically building upon what we had seen and loved so much. And for me, it was very fulfilling to really realize other rooms of Jabba's Palace. And I hope we get more opportunities to do more of that. Yeah. I know, I know I was freaked out when I had to like be in that set. It was surreal. The details of every single thing in there was, you know, spot on. Yeah, there I am! No. <laughs> it's so still surreal. Um, Rob, okay, so with um, the visual effects, you were the visual effects supervisor for Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, yes! Uh, how, how do you, you know, the, the, those flight sequences, you know, when they did Return of the Jedi, it was miniature Falcons, right? It was almost models. And now you're able to do it digitally. So um, what are the challenges and what are the differences in, in, in those two? Yeah, one of the really fun things we can do today is make that experience on set even more immersive. So for the Falcon, it was one of the earlier projects where we wrapped a projection screen um, around the cockpit of the Falcon so that the actors could actually be inside the Falcon and see the Kessel Run out in front of them. There was almost 20 pages, so about 20 minutes of the movie takes place inside that little cockpit. So you could imagine if, if that was just done in front of a blue screen, that might be a lot to keep track of for the actors, but in this case, when there's a space monster out the window, they're seeing a space monster. I remember the first time um, we put the cast up in this, in this set, um, and we just had a gray image on the screen. It was, wasn't even really turned on. So as far as they were concerned, it was just going to be a blue screen or something. They were starting to do the first rehearsal, and I was standing by behind the scenes, and it was Donald Glover in there, and the entire cast, Alden Elbert, everybody was in the, in the cockpit. And they finished this scene, and um, I think it was Phoebe who pushes the hyperspace levers, and when she did that, I go like, um, cue hyperspace, to the guys who were doing the thing. And this is what comes up on the screen, and all the cast goes, wow, this is unbelievable. This Because they're really going in hyperspace, and somebody goes, are we really going to the planet we're supposed to go to? And we're like, what if, because the cockpit was shaking. So it gives us an opportunity to integrate all of these skills, the lighting, the visual effects, the practical construction of these amazing um, places all together. And and we're able to build on this, oh, sorry. No, no, no. It, it, I... This is really hard work, okay, people? It's not like just going to an amusement park ride. This is, this is hard work. A custom-built amusement park ride just for that day of shooting. Um, it's super fun. And we're standing with people who've been doing this such a long time. Like, I get to, I'm so lucky to get to work with such amazingly talented people at ILM. People like 
Um, I've gotten to work with Ken Ralston before. We have Dennis Mirren. Bill George worked on Return of the Jedi and still works at ILM today as a supervisor supervising um, shows. In fact, he, he works on Star Tours. Uh, to give you an idea, so he gets to do some of those simulator ride kind of experiences. That's Bill sitting in the middle there. They're working on a Star Tours ride there with uh, George Lucas. Um, just absolutely incredible. So that design sensibility, Bill George was a mod is a model maker, is a supervisor, has all of these skills, and he and Dennis Muren and others can teach us the, the tricks that were working back then that are still applicable today, and then we can build on those with today's latest technology and you know, artistic experiments. Amazing. Okay, so um, I, I, um, I'm going to uh, now move forward because uh, thank you so much. You guys were incredible. I, I'm mesmerized by all the behind the scenes and all of everyone. But we've got more party people coming in. And uh, so without further ado, we're going to introduce the next group of panelists. You, they don't need any introduction. Please welcome Anthony Daniels of C3PO. I was hoping for a few more people giving me the, the Ewoks alarm there, but have any of you seen Return of the Jedi? <laughs> oh, well, another time then. Hello. Still have that godlike complex, do you? <laughs> no, from the film. Remember C-3PO? Was, he was considered a god by the Ewoks. Oh, it's against my programming. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> And then speaking of Ewoks, please welcome Warwick Davis and Wicked! Wicked! Woo! I am so... Okay. All right, now things are going to get a Thank little, you. you know, darker. And, uh, before you ask, I'm not going to bow, Anthony, oh. no. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely welcome celebration. Thank you so much. All right, well, all this struggle couldn't be without this next gentleman who plays the incredible Dark Force Palpatine. Ian McDermott!
And last but not least, Billy D. Williams has left Beautiful people. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Okay. Whew. I try to not totally geek out here. Here we go. Um, I'm going to. Uh, right these days, when we go to work, you know, we don't have to go to the desert. Tantui comes to us. But your first day of shooting Return of the Jedi, and this is for Anthony and Billy D. Um, you were there, and apparently there was a, uh, a, a, a sandstorm, a massive sand, sandstorm the first day of shooting Return of the Jedi. Uh, I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that first day, what you recall, um, how was it, Anthony, to work in that costume? in that environment? I, I think you're talking about uh, in stage two at L Street. Is that um, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. Um, do, do you remember this? Um, they filled a sound well, stage. The Millennium Falcon was there, and they filled the sound stage with sand, and that's it. And huge dustbin fulls of sand and full of earth and muck and everything and big propellers that sucked it up into the air. and. They shouted action and they started the fans. And from that moment, nobody could see or hear anything. And everybody was just bumping into the scenery because it wasn't around. And of course, it took days to clear the place up after that was sand everywhere in the canteen or around the studio and whatever. And you never saw it. It was cut. Was it cut? <laughs> wow. Show business. <laughs> Um, was it tough to be in that costume, or, or has it evolved since <laughs> the first Star Wars? Well, Neil, Neil would know very well uh, that for various reasons, um, oh, I mustn't go into that. Um, there are people listening. Um, it's, uh, the, the first costume was made in 1976 by a terrific crew. It was made out of fiberglass and, and uh, plastic and aluminum, and, and, and me. Look at those sneakers. And um, it w was remarkable because after six months, I said, you know, can I rehearse in it? And they said, no, it has to go uh, to Tunisia to be on set. And I saw it two weeks later. And for the first time, and many of you uh, will have heard, you know, it took two hours to get into, into this suit. And uh, I was there for the rest of the day. And uh, it was pretty bad. But, you know, I stuck with it for 40-something years. <laughs> Yes. So it bears its marks, but it's improved over time. And as you were saying, you need to, uh, to make things uh, for the actors, the puppeteers particularly, to be able to do all that kind of thing and, and be comfortable. And you do a great job, I know. So thanks to everybody behind the scenes of that costume. And... So, Billy D, you don't remember about that first day? No? Okay. 
<laughs> just wipe out your, wipe that all out. Um, well, Anthony, uh, just uh, to continue with uh, your experience with Return of the Jedi, when you were in the Redwood Forest, you had an opportunity to work with um, Warwick as an 11-year-old at the time. Do you recall meeting and, and, and working with Warwick? Oh, yes. Um, 11? Do you remember? Uh, yes, uh, I do. How was it? Yeah, I was in awe of you. Quite right, too. Like, wow, there's... <laughs> because you'd been watching me for how many years? Oh, probably um, about four years at that point. Yeah. I didn't realize there was something soft and squidgy inside. <laughs> it was amazing. It was. Trouble is, uh, most of the Ewoks did, I have to say, look the same. You know, they're strange eyes. They were meant to be animated, weren't they, originally? Uh, animatronic eyes, that didn't happen. But you stuck out for two reasons. You were the, the tiniest Ewok, and you were the only person who actually animated your face. And if we can get a close-up now, because the only thing you could do, not the eyes, do you know where we're going with this? Okay, can we go into a close-up here of Warwick? I don't know, but... Um... Okay, so, the only bit of wicket that still lives is this bit. Uh, it was my actual tongue I could get through between the teeth, which actually, as Anthony says, brought the face to life. You tried that with 3PO, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> didn't go so well. But you were, you were uh, delightfully energetic, and you were so happy to be there. You were having a great time. Me, I'm whinging away in my suit, and you're frolicking about. Well, all the other Ewoks were old and moaning, weren't they? Yes. They used to call me the ever-ready Ewok, because I just wanted to do more. <laughs> Everyone would be on tea break or collapsed, and I'd want to do another take. Well, you had to, because you didn't get it right first time. <laughs> oh! Here we go, here we go. <laughs> Anthony, he was 11. <laughs> what an amazing... I mean, you were a big Star Wars fan, even back then. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah. I remember, like, a lot of people here lining up to see Star Wars and uh, missing that showing, getting to the front of the line, they closed the door, waited for two hours and went to see the next showing. And at that point, realised that, um, you know, movie making had been changed forever because uh, this had a huge impact on me as a kid. I went home and told my mum the entire story, which actually took longer than the movie itself. <laughs> um, yeah, but at that point, I was seven. I didn't know when I was 11 I'd have a chance to join that kind of whole um, adventure as a boy. Uh, nowadays, um, youngsters among the audience, you know, you play video games to live out your characters on the screen. But I was able to do it for real. Battling stormtroopers, uh, you could never have so much fun as an 11-year-old. It was amazing. Oh, look at me. Oh, look at you right there. Amazing. So there you can see my dad to the right of me there with the Blue Harvest shirt on. Now, Blue Harvest was the kind of name given to the production so that we didn't get fans like yourself snooping around the set. It was horror beyond imagination. But we also had a, another fake title, didn't we? Revenge of the Jedi. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, Horror Beyond Imagination was inspired by you, I think. <laughs> they talked oh, to me and said, what was know. it like to meet Anthony? And uh, that's what I said. I can imagine a lot. Uh, people were totally not fooled. There we were in Europe, Yuma, Arizona, and everybody was wearing uh, Blue Harvest stuff and so on, and, and in the Redwood Forest where we were. And 
you know, people would come up, they'd be seeing the set from a distance, and they would come to the wire and say, you know, how, how come is there a gold robot in a horror movie? It's a Star Wars film, isn't it? And yeah, we weren't fooled at all, but it made uh, great memorabilia, didn't it? Absolutely. And they said, those teddy bears aren't scary. What are you doing? I'm talking of great memorabilia. Exactly. <laughs> scary teddy bears, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> The end of Palpatine. <laughs> okay, that, that voice, we recognize it so well. Now, Ian, when, when, we, when you were like working on that, that, that character voice uh, for Palpatine um, and, and tra transforming it, you know, that Emperor's, what, what were some of the processes that you had to go through to, to find it? Because then later on, you play actually a younger version of the Emperor. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, you were Palpatine and then this, you know, so know, between the I two, what, how, how did you balance? It's incredibly confusing going, because <laughs> I was just a kid when I was playing this 120-year-old, more or less, and then I went back to being my own age, which was really terrifying, <laughs> in the prequels, and then I ended up not to be dead, to a lot of people's surprise, particularly <laughs> my own and, uh, I, yeah, okay. I was uh, very glad to be back, of course, you know. And uh, people said, I don't believe it. He died. He was thrown down that chute, you know, after the Ewoks conquered the world, conquered the planet, conquered the universe. I don't know, I can't follow these things. <laughs> And uh, I said, yeah, because I remember asking George after we completed that sequence, because I don't know if you know this, but in order to throw somebody down, for it to look like that in the movies, you have to yank people up. So I was on a harness for most of a week while they yanked me up in order I could look as if I was being thrown down eventually by, by Dave. And all Dave Powers had to do, um, George said, was to catch my feet as I was going around, you know. Well, he didn't. <laughs> but it, but it, but it was fun. It was, it was, it was great fun. And the voice, to answer your question, sort of came out of the, of the horrible face. As, as Nick Dudman slowly created this monster, I thought, well, he looks disgusting. He should sound disgusting. So I sort of, sort of went into that. You know, it's, it, it, to put it crudely, it was initially, anyway, a voice on the vomit. Oh, nice. And, and you know what I mean, just there. And one of my favorites. My favorite thing is could you do with the cackle? Oh, that. The evil cackle. Is well, it possible? Somebody's got to say something amusing. Over to you, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't really. Uh, we love to tease each other. Um, here we go. <laughs> Okay. That's, um, that's my voice finished for the rest of celebration. Now, Billy Dee, um, Ian was talking about being, you know, tied up and, and doing all this physical stuff. When you were playing Lando Carizian, the suave, you know, just, um, well, I guess he was the administrator of uh, Cloud City. Uh, I'm wondering, what was it like, though, when you came back? to do Return of the Jedi, and you had to hang upside down during the Sarlacc scene where you were being, you know, uh, you, were on, you were on that for a while, and then you were like, 
you know, I'm sliding down and being like all that physicality of, of, of what you had to do in that scene. Was it difficult? Did you love it? Um, do you I remember? I hated it every moment. <laughs> <laughs> it was hot, I'm sure, and uncomfortable. So. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember, actually, because I was, the camera was on Jabba's uh, barge, uh, shooting across, and we were all under the canopy of the sails, and you were, you can see the shadows. You were right out there for hours, hanging upside down, on a wire, I think, around your ankle, and blistering heat. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> so you wouldn't do it again. I'm so sorry I missed that part of the filming in my furry suit. <laughs> Can I just say, while we have a hiatus here, how privileged I feel to be sitting amongst such esteemed company of actors yes. and creators here as well. I mean, it's amazing. It Am is. I worthy, really? <laughs> I... Well, I think we are very pleased to be sitting, even though you played an Ewok, with you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. But to be absolutely uh, correct here, you, you said, as I was waiting a long time in the wings to come on, along with Ian, who had to sit down eventually. We, we were out there. So I listened to you talking about uh, the difference between the digital... One of the differences between a digital character and something that's puppeteered. And basically, I was puppeteering 3PO, and you have had many, many puppeteered uh, creatures, and you have done most of them, haven't you? Yes. Um, they're all... In the same way, yeah, anyway. Um, but the difference is that with a human inside, now many digital artists are brilliant at creating uh, fake humanity, but you, only when you have a soul in there do you get something actually visceral and something that we as humans do feel an animal quality within there. So I love the fact that you honor the, the puppeteers who are generally sweating away behind, behind the mask. Well done. Love your work, Rob. Love your work, though. Thank you. You're okay. so right. That combination, that combination of that human performance with the with the physical performance uh, with the physical puppeting and the digital, we can do things that we couldn't do before. And you're so right to highlight the talented artists. Sometimes hundreds or thousands of them behind the scenes getting every frame. You know what, though, Rob? I mean, I think you know. I sense a real atmosphere. I think you can come back with a bit of a one on that, can't you? In, in defense of the digital artists. Just a very simple Something thing. Witty and digital artist for me at ILM on the last movie, eventually the uh, C-3PO uh, panties got a, a... I was going to say a bit stiff, and that suddenly came <laughs> totally not what I meant. The plastic... Right here, Anthony gets stiff in the suit. <laughs> can it cope? As you once ma asked me, when I, do you remember saying to me, at one of these celebrations, so, Anthony, when you, uh, when you put on the suit, does everything go like stiff? Do you I remember saying didn't that? I didn't mean to say it, honestly. I wasn't looking for a laugh. It was um, a one, <laughs> one of the things that happened was I couldn't do some of the scenes with the whole pants on, so I wore a sort of the top gold bit. And then ILM digitally stitched in uh, the, the pants, as it were, so I could climb up mountains and run through the desert. I'm hugely grateful. <laughs> now, what can't be digitally enhanced or anything is uh, John Williams' scores. Right? And, and John Williams, 
he, of course, adds in so much to the films. And Ian, um, supposedly, supposedly, you um, actually watched him in scoring the film at one point. Um, can you tell us a bit about that memory? Yeah, it was at uh, the Abbey Road Studios in London, famous for many recordings of great orchestras and uh, great rock and pop groups. The Beatles used to record there. And George said, come along and we'll just put the music on. And there was the enormous and enormously wonderful London Symphony Orchestra and London Symphony Chorus. And this is a lot of people. Uh, and John standing in the middle conducting with a screen and doing tiny bits, little excerpts of the movie at a time. And uh, he'd do it a couple of times and then he'd come in to the recording studio and listen. And he'd bring the heads of all the departments of the orchestras in with him. And George would say, hey, that's great, John, thanks. Can we move on? And, and uh, John would say, no, certainly not. You know, it's, it's, it's not great at all. It's really imperfect. And then the heads of the various departments would say where they thought they got it wrong and how they could do it better. That's what you guys were talking about earlier on. It's a sort of the quest for perfection went on in that very room. And uh, he also, I'm sure most of you know this, apart from being, I think, probably the best contemporary uh, composer around of classical music as well as, you know, for concerts as well as for film scores. He had enormous patience and charm, and he was professionally immaculate. His timing was so exact. But uh, he wouldn't leave it there. If there was a note out of place or there was something that could be improved, he was on it. We're going to, have to work. We're going to have to work on your George Lucas impersonation, right? Sorry? We're going to have to work on your impersonation. Yes, I know. Oh, I, just, I, I just generalize American. I apologize to all the general Americans, <laughs> especially you, Billy right. Now, Billy Dee, there's got to be one story of you enjoying <laughs> shooting something in Star Wars. Anything? Come on. <laughs> well, I think you're keeping it all secret because actually Billy D. Williams is going to have a book that will come out soon. Yeah, What's the title my, of the book, Billy? Billy it's D. my uh, autobiography. Oh. Um, what happened? It's being uh, published by uh, Knopf in the U.S. and uh, out here in the UK, Otter and Strawton. Is that how you pronounce it? Strawton, yeah. And uh, it's called, uh, What Have We Here? Nice. So I guess if we want to hear any stories, we will have to wait for his book. Well, what have we, what have we here? Portraits of my life. Well, we will definitely. A crazy yeah. life. Can we all wonderful, plug our books now? A wonderful. Have you world. got a book, Ian? Ian, have you got a book? Have I got a book? No, no, no. I can't write. It's a I can, wonderful. I can barely read. Um, no, it's not. If you could, what would it be called? It's a wonderful um, whirlwind of a. It would uh, extraordinary experience or experiences. 
going all the way back to when I started it on, on, in a Broadway musical when I was six and a half years old. Wow. A Kurt Weill musical with La Helena. Do you know those names? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. Congratulations on getting a book. And now Billy Dee is also an author. Um, Anthony, Return of the Jedi uh, was the conclusion of the original trilogy. And we all know that um, you've had many more performances as C-3PO in your future. But at the time, did you ever think you were going to play C-3PO again? After this? It's a, it's a good question, because when we did... You were going to ask what the title of my book was. I, I was going to say that, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, do you have a book out? Yes, I do. What's it called? It's called I Am C-3PO, The Inside Story. Ah, clever. I like it. And uh, since you asked, Anthony, what my book's called, are you asking that? No. What? Ow. Ow. It's called Size Matters Not. And, uh, is it a Yoda? It's a oh, Yoda really, book. it is. Autobiography, yeah. It's about Yoda. Yes, just like Yoda. See what I've done there? Uh, yes. Very, Science, very, all that. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, so you were Doug. asking me a right. question. I'm sure you've done. Um, have you got well, a coffee no, table? No, but um, apparently somebody else wants gone. to have the last word. Okay. And I think it's this scoundrel here. Let's uh, hear what um, Harrison Ford has to say in his greeting for us. Hey. Return of the Jedi turns 40. I'm so grateful the film's held up after all this time. With a lot of credit going to Mark and Carrie and to all of the fine panelists that are with you now. It's you all, the fans, that are the ones that keep these stories alive. And I'm thankful for the opportunities your love of these films has given me over the course of my career. Thank you. Enjoy this year's celebration. And may the Force be with you all. round of applause to our esteemed panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Billy, Ian, Warwick, Anthony, Doug, Rob, and Neil. May the stars light your way throughout all your journey. May the stars light your way throughout all your days. May you see all the world's systems, stars, and planets. May the stars light your way and see you safely home. Did you like that?